0: While I was getting the video ready for uploading last week, I realized I might have confused folks at the end when I was talking about listening for the Holy Spirit behind you. That was a reference to a really beautiful passage in Isaiah 30, 21. God says, whether you turn to the right or the left, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And I I wasn't saying we hear a physical voice necessarily. I was referring to the Lord's promise in this verse and others like it, that no matter where we find ourselves, no matter whether we choose to go left or choose to go right, the Lord has promised to be present with us and will guide us and will give us the words to say when we need them. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to step out and to um, help people. So we're going to finish our study of the Mosaic Law today. Woo-hoo! We're, all, we're already done with the hard parts. Today, we get to move on to the festivals and celebrations the Lord sets up for the Israelites. I love this part, I guess because I love celebrations. As a side note, remember that when the Lord talks about days, all such days begin at sunset and continue until sunset the following day. The first festival of the year we already know about, it's Passover. It happens in March or April and is followed immediately by and incorporates the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On Passover Eve, each Israelite household slaughters a lamb and prepares a feast. Just like on that terrible night in Egypt during the final plague, the Israelites eat roasted lamb, bread without yeast, and bitter herbs exactly the same thing the Lord told them to eat the night of the exodus from Egypt. Every bit is to be eaten before morning. This is a celebration of remembrance, to remember the mighty things the Lord did in rescuing them from slavery. And everyone in Israel is to celebrate Passover in this way, even the foreign immigrants living among them. The next morning, which is still the first day of the festival, Everyone gathers for a sacred convocation. No work is done all day long. Every day for seven days of the festival, the Israelites give a food offering to the Lord. And the offering is massive. It's two bulls, a ram, seven lambs, and one goat as a sin offering. And these are burnt offerings. So the offerings are completely burned up and none is eaten. They're accompanied by their corresponding grain offerings. And all of these offerings are done every single morning for seven days in addition to the normal daily sacrifices. So this is a very big deal. This is expensive. In preparation for the festival, all homes are completely cleansed of any yeast. Why is that? Well, in Deuteronomy 16.3, the Lord explains that bread without yeast is, quote, the bread of affliction. It's to remind them how they left Egypt in great haste. It's to remind them of the urgency. All seven days, the Israelites continue to eat unleavened bread. And finally, on the seventh and last day of the festival, they gather together again for a closing convocation. And again, no work is done all day. If you've ever been to a modern Passover Seder celebration, you'll know there's a whole lot more ritual more items eaten, and an hours-long ceremony involved. All this other tradition is just that. It's tradition, and it's built up over the centuries. And it remains a beautiful service. And if you ever get a chance to go to one, be sure to do it. There are lots of parallels between the Passover lamb and Christ, both in form and function. And so there are many Christians who also celebrate some form of Passover Seder. Some people take offense at this and call it cultural appropriation. Others develop joint ceremonies between Christians and Jews, while others believe that because of Christ, Christians have just as much right to celebration of Passover as Jews do. I think they're good arguments for all these views. So if you do, as a Christian, celebrate some form of Passover, be sensitive to others who might be offended. And adjust as needed. I think God welcomes worship and fellowship in whatever meaningful form it may take for us, but I think He also wants us to be mindful of how our actions impact each other. Right around this same time in the spring is the Festival of First Fruits. There are actually two different festivals like this during the year. This one in the spring is associated with offering the Lord the first fruits of the barley harvest. This one reinforces the importance of offering the Lord the first and best of whatever blessings are bestowed, be it firstborn sons, firstborn animals, or first fruits of the harvest. The Festival of First Fruits occurs on the very first day they put their sickle to their grain, right after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second Festival of First Fruits is called the Festival of Weeks, and that's because it's seven weeks and one day later. And by this time, they've brought the wheat harvest safely in also, so it's time for another celebration. We know it by the name of Pentecost, the Pentec, referring to the 50 days since the Festival of First Fruits. The offering to be made is in proportion to the size of the harvest, along with the usual solemn burnt offerings of bulls, rams, etc. It's a sacred day, so there's another big assembly and no work is done. The next festival doesn't happen until fall. Around October or November is a festival that isn't given a name in scripture, but it's come to be called the Feast of Trumpets because the offerings and the sacred assembly are to be accompanied by trumpet blasts. These are ear-piercing blasts on ram's horns. You can just imagine the people cheering and celebrating. It's now called Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year. And that name is linked to the civil calendar, not the sacred calendar. But you definitely get a feel for the festival by thinking of it like our modern New Year celebrations. It's just a celebration, letting off steam, making a bunch of noise, and giving thanks to God, plain and simple. Ten days later, however, is another festival, the most solemn festival of the year. It is the Day of Atonement, again. It's a sacred assembly and no work is done all day. On this one single most important day of the year, Aaron, the high priest, is to enter the Holy of Holies where God himself is hovering above the mercy seat, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. But Aaron can't just waltz in there. This is the holiest place on earth and Aaron must prepare carefully. First, he must bathe, cleanse his body, which you now realize the significance of after our class last week. Then, he dresses in the linen undergarments, tunic, sash, and turban of the high priest. Next, he must bring a young bull for a sin offering for himself and his household, plus a ram for a burnt offering. After slaughtering the bull, he takes a censer full of burning coals from the altar, along with two handfuls of incense and a bowl of the bull's blood. With these in hand, he enters the holy place and moves to the curtain that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. I imagine he's pretty scared as he dares to part the curtain and step into the holy of holies. Once inside, he avoids looking at the ark. He places the censer of burning coals on the floor in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Then he sprinkles the two handfuls of incense onto the burning coals so that a cloud of smoke rises to obscure his view of the mercy seat, the cover of the ark. This protects him from death by obscuring his view of God. He then dips his finger in the bull's blood and sprinkles it on the mercy seat itself and then sprinkles it seven times on the ground in front of the mercy seat. This is the sin offering for himself and his own household. Then he goes back outside and probably breathes a sigh of relief. The Israelites bring him a ram and two goats as an offering for themselves as a community. Aaron takes the two goats and presents them to the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then he casts lots for the two goats. This is sort of a heads or tails thing. One choice is the Lord, and the other is entire removal. The goat chosen for the Lord is sacrificed as a sin offering for the people. Aaron takes the bowl of its blood, goes back into the Holy of Holies, sprinkling the blood of this sin offering for the people on the mercy seat and then in front of the mercy seat, exactly as he sprinkled the blood of the bull for himself and his household. No other priest is to be in the tent of meeting while Aaron is doing all this. When he's finished with the atonement for the people, it's time to make atonement for the actual altar itself. He takes some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and puts it on each horn of the altar and then sprinkles the altar seven times with the blood. This cleanses the altar and consecrates it. Next, he brings over the live goat, that second one, the one that was designated for complete removal. Uh, Leviticus sixteen twenty-one through 22 says, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. And this, my dear friends, is where we get the term scapegoat. All the atonement Aaron did for himself and the people up to this point was done in the presence of God at the mercy seat, deep inside the tent of meeting in the Holy of Holies. But now... Aaron is out among the people where they can all see him. God wants the people to actually see their sins being placed on this goat and being carried far, far away from them into the wilderness. After this, Aaron goes back into the tent of meeting, bathes, and changes into his normal clothes, leaving the blood-covered linen garments in the holy place. Then he comes out and does the very last part of the ritual. He takes his own ram and the ram the people brought him and sacrifices them as a burnt offering for himself and all the people. This day, the Lord says, is a day of Sabbath rest. God says they're to to deny themselves and do no work. Notice that as I pointed out last week, the Sabbath rest is specifically identified as a way of denying ourselves our own power. We must lay our power down for the Sabbath. God says the Israelites are to deny themselves work on this day, because on this day, atonement is being made for them. On this day, the Lord will cleanse them from all their sins. This is the highest holy day of the year in Israel. It is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. So we had the Feast of Trumpets, and then 10 days later, the Day of Atonement. And now, just five days after that, is another festival. This one is the last of the annual festivals, and it's called the Festival of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles. As you know, the word tabernacle simply means a temporary shelter. It's a little more sturdy than a regular tent, which is a different word in Hebrew, but it's a lot less permanent than a house. In this context, it's more like a scaffolding of wood covered with a rugged roof of branches. Very small, just one little room. We might call it a lean-to nowadays. So you could call this the festival of lean-tos. As you might guess, there's a sacred assembly on the first day, and no one does any work that day. The Israelites are to find palm branches, willow branches, and other similar branches, and it says they are simply to rejoice. And they are to keep rejoicing for seven days. Everyone is to camp out in these lean-tos for the whole week. It's a great big community camp out. And it's specifically to celebrate the completion of the season's threshing and the pressing of the grapes. And I expect there's more than a little food and wine flowing. How fun does that sound? It's to be done every year after they arrive in the promised land to remind them of the camping they're doing right now in the wilderness. It's to remind them how the Lord is leading them and providing for them every day and in the promised land. It is to celebrate the Lord's blessing of their work. The Hebrew word here for tabernacles or booths is sukkot. Remember the significance of the places named sukkot? it has always been the name of the place they rested after a major rescue by God. It was the name of the place Jacob rested after his dangerous reunion with Esau. And it was the name of the place the Israelites rested the very first night they left Ramses, even before they'd reached the Red Sea. This festival is to remind the Israelites that Yahweh is their rescuer and their first resting place. And honestly, from a sacrificial offering point of view, this is a hugely important festival. On the first day, they're to offer 13 bulls, 2 rams, 14 lambs, along with the corresponding grain offerings, plus one male goat as a sin offering. On the second day of the festival, they're to offer 12 bulls, 2 rams and 14 lambs and so on, decreasing the number of bulls by one each day. It's like the 12 days of Christmas, but it's the eight days of the Feast of Booths. On the final day, the eighth day, there is a special closing assembly and no one does any work. One bull, one ram, and seven lambs are sacrificed, plus the sin offering of one goat. This whole week of camping out has been one great big joyous celebration. God says, be joyful at your festival, all of you, every single one. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. And that's the last of the festivals. Look how marvelous they all are. All of them are commemorating God's rescue, our our recognition of God's care, God's bountiful blessing, God's delight in our joy and happiness, God's provision to make us holy so we can be together with him, and God's constant provision for our rest and safety. This is our God. This is what he's teaching the Israelites about himself. There's one more festival, Purim, that will get added later. And there's one, Hanukkah, that will be added by the people rather than the Lord. We'll get to that one when we get to the things that happen in between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. So out of all these festivals, there are three that God says absolutely have to be done all together as a community in one place. The festival of unleavened bread, where the whole community celebrates and remembers the Passover. The festival of weeks, where the whole community offers the Lord praise for the harvest, and the Festival of Booths, where it's a great big community camp out to celebrate the completion of the season's work. After they settle in the Promised Land, the Lord will establish a spe- special place in Israel for these annual gatherings to occur, and no one is to come empty-handed. Everyone is to bring gifts in proportion to the blessings God has bestowed on them that year. At this point, you might say, but Gail, if we're finished with the festivals, you you didn't talk at all about Christian imagery and symbolism in the tabernacle or the Passover or these festivals like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And you're right. We'll get to that when we study the New Testament. For now, I want us to stay firmly anchored in the worldview of the Israelites. I want us to get a good, immersive sense of what all this meant to them and how God was creating these rich sensory experiences to help the Israelites get to know him. There's one last very significant part of the Mosaic Law that the Lord sets up, but it's not an annual festival nor a series of rituals. It's actually a special Sabbath cycle all by itself, and it's to begin when they enter the promised land. God says the land itself must be given a Sabbath. Every seventh year, the Israelites are not to plow the land nor to sow any seed. They are to let the land rest. Well, think about that. If they don't sow any seed, they're obviously not going to have any crops that following year. And the Lord says that even if the land grows something spontaneously, don't go out there and harvest it until the next year. In the Sabbath years, they'll eat only from whatever they harvested the previous year. And the Lord says that will be enough. They will have enough. It's just like the manna on the Sabbath day. Remember that on the sixth day, he always gave them double the manna and it would keep, it's exactly the same thing. They just need to trust him. So I want us to think about this. We now know that this is basic good husbandry of the land, but the deeper point is that the Lord cares about the health of the land. If we apply our four-step tool for interpreting the law, we see that the Lord is building in sustainable practices. The Lord is very interested in renewing the land. This is not a throwaway planet. We are to care for it carefully and faithfully. And then comes the granddaddy of them all, the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, after seven cycles of seven years have passed, the trumpets are to sound all throughout the land on the Day of Atonement, This year will be the year of Jubilee. God says from wherever you're living, if you've moved away from your family for any reason, in this year, you're to return to your clan and to your family's property. This year, you are not to sow nor reap. And since it will always follow a Sabbath year, that means you've got two years in a row where the land rests completely, and so do you. And the Lord says he'll make sure there's enough food harvested in the preceding year to last you and your family through both of the Sabbath years. All land sold to someone outside the family must be given back. Essentially, the Lord is saying that when he gives each tribe their place in the promised land, that land will belong to that tribe forever. They can sell it, but it's really more like renting it for a few years, and the price is adjusted accordingly. Because in the year of Jubilee, ownership reverts back to the tribe. The only exception to that rule is for the Levites. They don't receive land when the Israelites get to the promised land. Remember, they're the Lord's portion. Their houses are all that they have, so their houses are always returned to them in the year of Jubilee. Except for the Levites, there's a special rule for a city-dweller's home, someone whose livelihood is not farming or ranching. If an Israelite lives in a walled city and sells their house to someone, they have one full year to buy it back. But after that year is up, the house has become a home to the buyer, and it is not to be returned during the year of Jubilee. All homes out in the country, however, are considered part of the land, part of the farming and ranching heritage of a tribe, and are returned during the year of Jubilee. And lastly, if any of the Israelites have sold themselves into slavery or indentured servitude to a foreigner living in the promised land, the Lord says, a relative can redeem them at any time, and they must never be mistreated. But if they have not already been redeemed, then they and their children must be freed in the year of Jubilee so they can return home to their family. This is such a powerful, awesome concept. Can you imagine living in a world where not only all of your sins are forgiven automatically every single year and in the interim as needed, but all your stupid financial decisions are wiped away at least once, if not twice in your lifetime? where what you have lost is given back to you, where where you have a full year of rest every seven years and two years of rest every 50 years, where all you need to do is follow the Lord's instructions about keeping yourself and your neighbors safe and healthy, where there is always, always a simple path to God, The Lord winds all this up with a beautiful passage in Exodus 23. It's worth reading in its entirety. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. I wonder if this is another possible reference to Jesus and or the Holy Spirit as the pillar of cloud and fire that leads them and protects them. In any case it is an angel of the lord reference. God is saying he will remain physically visible and present and that even though all they see is fire or cloud They need to remember it is God himself leading them to the promised land. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Now God does this for a lot of reasons, but he explains the main reason here. It's the danger these people pose to the Israelites by actively and intentionally tempting them to turn back to worshiping other gods. God says, do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way, but I'll not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. There's another reference to the importance of being fruitful and multiplying as quickly as possible. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. What a huge, amazing promise. The one big danger seems to be falling back into idol worship. And God's been fighting that battle since the days of the patriarchs, hasn't he? Remember Rachel? And even now he foresees a long, hard fight for the hearts of his people. They are not going to give up their idols willingly. And we've done it. We've finished the Mosaic Law. There's a couple more bits about war that will pick up when they become applicable, But we've covered all of the concepts and it is magnificent, breathtaking in its imagery and in its mercy. It is an incredible promise of God's presence and involvement in our lives, of his deep care for us. Next week, we'll pick the storyline back up and see what happens to the Israelites. But for now, let's use our breakout time to think about God's economy of grace. So um welcome back everybody. Um talk to me first about what you all saw as the direction God was moving. What what what's the kind of the more overarching takeaways that you saw?
1: Building the community stronger is one thing that somebody in our group said.
2: in our in our group uh restoration was mentioned of relationship of property of family
0: anything else
3: also bringing people back to god as well as reliance on god
0: yeah yeah all good so um This The question of how to actually move our modern society that direction um, is a harder question because we're no longer an agrarian society. And we didn't start out with everybody owning particular, you know, parcels of land. So what were some of the ideas you came up with?
3: I said, trust in the Lord more, and then also be grateful for what the Lord has provided for us.
1: We also you know, talk, we, oh, oh, go ahead.
2: Well, we also talked about COVID and being of service to others. Um, you know, helping helping others. Time to slow down, restore those uh, relationships, and
1: of service to others this didn't come up in our group but I think it is interesting in that I'm Scottish and my father is the first born U.S. born um, person from our family before that Whenever someone was, but they came over sooner, but whenever someone was going to have a baby, they went back to Scotland, which Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but they did. (laughs) My grandfather and everybody was born in Scotland, but they came over sooner. How cool.
0: What other ideas did you guys come up with?
4: Uh, We mentioned the recognition. Speak up a (laughs) little, Ross.
0: I can't hear you, hon
4: uh yeah we we talk about you know recognizing authority uh of course God was the authority in those things and following the authority uh you know the best you can uh if that authority has society's best interests in mind um, obviously that could be that could be a world of good uh of course we're flawed we are we're more flawed than god but uh, that person of authority, uh not only should they be authority like if you talk about COVID and, and that stuff too, but they also I think they need to have uh a a context of you know, God, the Creator, and, and 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 recognize that authority too. So um we don't we don't we do less and less of that. And yeah. it causes chaos.
0: Well, we've moved pretty far away from the idea of a year of jubilees jubilee, and I was you know wondering what what you think a year of jubilee would look uh-huh. like you know in our society what could it look like in our society what other what other ideas did you guys come up
2: student loan divert forgiveness would be a great way to start,
0: yeah, for sure that's a nice concrete one, yeah.
3: Well, I just, I kind of made a parallel there to COVID. I mean, a a lot of stuff that we talked about here because of COVID, we've had to do. Um, Someone had mentioned uh, about uh, purging, uh, getting rid of stuff that they didn't need. Uh, Because we're now living at home all the time, we say, you know, I really don't need this. You know, I haven't touched this in (laughs) six months or whatever. So let's get rid of it. Uh, so that's some of the stuff that that went on during Jubilee, and so uh, and and taking care of others, uh, you know the 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 idea of wearing a mask not to protect yourself, although it helps a little bit, but the idea is that you're protecting everybody else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned purging because I am like in the middle of going through every closet and doing exactly that. It, it's it's. I I guess I hadn't linked it in my mind to the forced rest, the forced Sabbath that we're in um, as a result of COVID, but I bet you're exactly right. What other ideas did you have? I I had been
1: talking about purging for years. I'm going (laughs) to do this. This is what we need to do. And it just never seemed to happen. But then, when we found ourselves plopped right here, um, we started purging and doing projects, and
0: um, and it's kind of freeing. Yeah, there's we, something about about releasing these possessions, isn't there? There's something, there is something freeing about this.
1: It's- all, these are all good things, but somehow 2020 doesn't seem
4: like a year of jubilee.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I
2: guess it, I guess it's it's enforced jubilee actions because of where we've gotten as a society.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know what I just missed. We've got the hurricane weather up here now in Virginia, uh, oh, yeah. and I lost my signal, so I had to oh, start over I come in and you're all laughing and I'm like, dang, what did I miss? Didn't. Yeah,
2: Woody just said he didn't think that 2020 sounded like much of a year of jubilee. <laughs> I agree
1: with him. Okay. Yeah.
3: Even though a lot of the things that we're doing as a result of being forced to be at home has resulted in some, some satisfaction. Yeah.
0: we Said we, it's kind of a forced year of rest. But Julia said she's not resting so much. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. One of the things with purging, I we were talking about that as Gordon said, and um, one of the things getting rid of stuff. I also retired, and and I I think as Diane was saying, you know, you, I just never did it. Was working and never did it, and now it's a force. But then the other thing I've been doing too is we had neighbors who have, between the two of them, blended family, six kids. So before I donated it, you know, I would ask people, is there something you can use? Because I'd much rather give it to somebody who I know can use it and then I know not to be – it just gives me more satisfaction knowing that, oh, I sort of know who the recipient is and I know that they appreciate and that they can enjoy it. So
0: I think there's um, a lot you know, to there's a lot to be said for giving in relationship. Ross and I belong to a group that um, of friends that pools money and every month and we build a little fund and um, it's called a common change fund. If you're interested, it's common change is the website. But um, then whenever we see a um, somebody in need, whether it, it has to be a one degree of separation, it needs to be somebody. We it can be family, it can be friends, it can be neighbors, it can be co workers. But the whole idea is that when we give money towards that need, that person is somebody we know, they know us, and they know where it's coming from. And it's a hugely powerful thing. We've gotten into the somehow the mind frame that giving needs to be anonymous, but it's Far more powerful when it's from somebody you know. It builds the community. Yeah.
2: So, um, I mean, my daughter's had old old jewelry and I'm like, I don't know what to do. You know, and some of it, well my neighbor's an artist. So she's oh. like, oh I can I could tear it you know, I was thinking jewelry. It's like I can tear it apart right. and create something. And I'm like not I'm the analytical one. So I'm like, oh never even thought of that. So <laughs>
0: Exactly. Well, I would like, you know, in the closing minutes here to give you guys my take on what the year of Jubilee might look like um, in our society. And I thought about it in terms of the um, three main goals of the year of Jubilee as God directionally was instituting it. To me, the direction was God wanted everybody to have a home god wanted people out of slavery and god wanted people to rest so thinking along those lines as how that could be accomplished in our society realistically and fairly simply i thought you know it's probably not Practical where we are right now to forgive everybody's debts, although I do think student debt should be forgiven, you know. But um, we could reset everybody's credit scores and we could fix the system so that all basic needs are met without anyone having to go into debt. And so that would clearly mean healthcare and education, which is why I think. Healthcare debt and medical and student debt should be forgiven Um, and the system fixed so we don't have that debt anymore. And we can't really return homesteads that are lost in bankruptcy or, you know, whatever. Our society isn't structured like that. But what we can do is make sure everybody has a place to live. We can make sure everybody has transportation and everybody has a job. That's fairly simple to achieve. As far as slavery goes, I think that what we can do is realign minimum wage to be a living wage. So that anybody who is working can live a reasonable, reasonably comfortable life on that 40 hours a week. I also think with respect to that, if we do these particular few things, that it will vastly reduce the um, number of people on welfare and the number of people needing social services because families will once again be in a position to help people within their family who are in need and can't work. Right now, we can't do that. And the third thing having to do with rest, Is that we consider requiring um, in addition to much more reasonable, you know, um, uh, maternity leaves and, and paternity leaves and, you know, just basic leaves to take care of people that what would, what could we give a one year sabbatical to everybody every seven years? Mm -hmm. Um, And we would have to think about, you know, we could stagger it among employees so not everybody's gone at once. You could, you know, it doesn't have to everybody do it on the same seventh year, you know, as long as everybody gets a seventh year. We could um, think about, you know, if they're self-employed that it comes from a joint fund, you know, that we fund so that people who don't work in a bigger organization are able to participate. Um, we could think about letting the person pick what their first year is so that every seven years after that, and then let them adjust that if they have a significant life event, like they get married, the couple's going to want to sync up their, you know, their off years, that kind of thing. Um, or if there's an illness or or something like that. Um, and that just those few things would go a long, long way toward in the direction I think God is moving to bring families back together to restore a place to live and a livelihood um, to to release people from bondage that they're in and to give them significant rest I and love that's- that. That's it for class. And if you'd like to talk about it more, I am glad to stay. But I really wanted to. Yeah, that st- utopia doesn't sound like something that's going to fly in today's society. <laughs> you know, all of those are doable. You know, doable, I don't mind maybe, but-
1: working, but working from home, by Woody. Working from home is almost a sabbatical to me because I'm not commuting an hour and 20 minutes in the morning and an hour and 20 minutes in the Mm. afternoon. And that stress that's associated with that seven mile an hour crawl and the people driving around me. And then if it's raining, heaven forbid the wrecks that is gone from my life. So I'm able to cook better food. I'm able to, cause I start sooner. I don't have to worry about eating at eight o'clock at night and just working from home. I love it. It's almost like I'm having this year of jubilee.
0: Exactly. And, and I don't think, and I think that, you know, obviously the seventh year sabbatical is kind of a bigger shift for society, but all the things I listed for that are, are very doable, you know? Yeah. They're they're doable,
4: but unfortunately, I think a wealth. Can I add in there a wealth redistribution? Uh, I just think that's something that you know you kind of have to have in there. It's it's another one of those uh, bad naughty terms, but
0: (laughs) well, I do think that. That was, that was where I was going to some extent with adjusting the minimum wage to a real living wage. That is a redistribution of wealth. It's not enough, but it's a good start. And Diane, you were saying something.
1: What we've seen with COVID with people not willing to do something is so, to me, as simple as wearing a mask for other people. You know, there's some of these things I don't see people doing these days.
0: Yes. It's, it's no. unfortunate. Yes.
1: You know, and uh, it's been a real eye opener, not a pretty one. Um, how selfish, selfish people have become.
0: Yep. It has so been one of the most we, discouraging things about the, our experience with COVID, hasn't it? But um, it, it does show good. us how much this message from God is needed. In our society.
1: Yeah. You know, because there's
0: the problem isn't the message and the problem isn't
1: that we can't see what we need. The problem is there are a whole lot of other people who don't agree. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Well, but when you (laughs) when you model something and you um, adopt it as a mindset and reach out to others in love, it's a lot easier than the frustration that a lot of us are going through like I have a friend that's not concerned about covid they've been working through the whole time, and it concerns me, but they have they have a need with anxiety right now that I have been very protective of myself, but I have on maybe three occasions gone and reached out to this person. And I'll tell you, it scared me to death because I know that they are more at risk than I would like to be comfortable with. But I also know they need me. And I'm just praying nothing happens to me,
0: you know, yeah. through that. And I and I think that especially in this week before the election, it's good to remember that, all power belongs to the Lord, period, the end. This is Mm -hmm. not in our power. It was never meant to be in our power. We do have the power to, over how, what we do, over what we vote for, over what we support, over what comes out of our mouths, which comes out of what's in our hearts. And I, and I think that, um, to the extent that we can remember that we're not here to persuade people with our words, but with what comes out of our hearts, that that's the most powerful place we can operate from. It makes a difference. It seems like there's all these people that, that are so harsh to each other and so, so selfish and it just boggles the mind. But But we, just by being who we are in and living that in the world, we're making a difference. And in the end, it's like I've been saying all along, the end belongs to the Lord. We're only responsible for the means.